on our last day of the retreat, uh, one of the camp owners pulled me aside, which is always a little scary. And it was like an hour before we left. His name's Brad. And Brad was like, Matt, before you go, I need to share with you some of the behavioral things that we've seen this weekend. And it's like, oh, crud, we almost got out of here. <laughs> and it's almost like, and everything went so smooth. Everything was so great, too. And it's like, why? Like, what, what happened? Like, in the last, like, 24 hours that, like, changed. And Brad's like, so we've been doing this a long time. And we saw this weekend that your group was kind to each other. They were honest. They were respectful and friendly. They celebrated one another. Uh, they were inclusive and engaging. And we've been doing this for 40 years. And it's not every weekend that we have a youth group come stay with us that that's our experience with a group. Which was, yeah. And here's, like, here's the crazy thing, too, is that it wasn't just our youth group there. We were there with another youth group, too. And I think at one point, it was hard for the camp staff to know whose youth group belonged to who, uh, which is just, and we had never met this youth group before. It was such a cool way to end our time together. And our theme that weekend was disconnected, um, which may seem like a weird theme because we didn't mean it in the positive sense of like disconnecting from your phone or from life back at home and your responsibilities, but there's been a great disconnection that I think our students have experienced and that we as people have experienced. And when we got together as a youth staff for our retreat and we're just brainstorming, um, what should we focus on? What should our theme be for that weekend? We talked about three three disconnections that we just seen in the lives of our students and in ourselves too. And, and one being the disconnect that often happens of how, how, do, we, how do we move from just head knowledge to, to heart, right? And to actually living out our faith. And sometimes there's a disconnect there that happens. We, we just keep it one or the other. We talked about the disconnect of feeling disconnected from God, that there's just moments and times in our lives where we're like, God, where are you at? Like, what's going on? Why did this happen? And we talked about the disconnect in our community that we've experienced, especially in the last couple years, this disconnect of not knowing how to live together in unity, not knowing how to be in relationship, because everything feels a little more dicey now. Things don't feel as safe with one another as they once did. And so how do we, how do we after being separate from each other for so long and, and siphoned off from each other at times, how do we come back together and how is this unity and community restored? Our speaker that weekend uh, would take us through three movements with each of our lessons. The first movement would be he would address a lie that we believe that leads to disconnection something innately that we trust in or we believe that leads to disconnect, either uh, from head to heart or with God or with others. And then we'd look at Jesus, and we'd sit in the Gospels. We sat in the book of John that weekend, and we'd look at Jesus, and we would see Jesus' counteroffer to the lie, that there is truth that Jesus invites us to see the actual reality of how the world works, how his kingdom works, and to replace the lie with truth and to trust him and to take hold of it. And then the third movement would be to actually put Jesus's counteroffer into practice, 
to do something tangible, to not just simply think about it, but to do something with it too, to have a conversation or to write something or to pray a certain way. And so we were encouraging students to put these things we were talking about into practice individually and as a group as well. And Brad, the camp owner, his observation of our weekend was such a cool punctuation to end our week because that weekend we saw student after student take hold of Jesus's counteroffer and put into practice Jesus' invitation to trust in him and his kingdom ways instead of the lies that we often believe. We saw students, like Landon said, be vulnerable with one another, actually transparent with each other and with the Lord. We saw intentionality. We saw them celebrate each other, sometimes over really big and awesome things, sometimes over a middle schooler carrying an inflatable unicorn over his head as he ran down to the dining hall, right? And just cheering for no reason other than to just celebrate. Now you really want to go to youth group. Uh, we, we also saw um, students be responsive to the Lord, and we saw students love and serve one another. Last week, Dan took us through Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And as we were sitting in that passage, I couldn't help but to think about the retreat that we had just been on, where we see believers come together and share things in common with one another, to commit to one another, to serve one another. And we got a taste of that on our little retreat um, for three days, or for, four night, for three nights and four days at Camp Tapawingo. And so while today we're not continuing in Acts, we're, we're doing a little deviation from Acts until next week, uh, the passage that we're in is the one that Marilyn read earlier in John 17, and it feels like such a good dovetail from last week and also a way to express and sit in some of the things we got to experience that weekend and share those things with you. So this may not be your typical sermon this morning, but what I want to do is make some observations about the time that we spent together as a youth group, share those things with you, and then also sit in Jesus's prayer in John 17 and make some observations about that that I think are very applicable for the church right now, today, and forever. As we, uh, if you have a Bible, turn in your Bibles to John 17. We see um, this is where Jesus is praying in the garden. Um, and in this passage, as we're leading up to Good Friday and Easter, has just been on my mind recently. Before we dive in, though, let me pray. Lord God, would you help us to see you this morning? Would you expose in us lies that we believe about community and unity and what it means to live as your people here on earth? And instead, would we take hold of your counteroffer, Lord? And as we see you pray here, God, it is a beautiful offer. And would you help us not to just um, theoretically be able to grasp these things, but would you help us as your people to put them into practice, to actually live this way together and with you in your name. Amen. So I wonder when you are in a dire situation, what is it that you're praying for? When trouble's at the door, uh, when the going gets tough, when things don't go the way you planned, how are you praying? What are you praying for? Is it for circumstances to change? Is it for help from God? 
Is it from peace from God? Which these are all great things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like listing the list of you could be doing better. No, like these are good things to pray for. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we actually see Jesus pray along these lines as he's in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross to bear the sin of the world and ultimately to die. That he prays, Father, would you take this cup from me? If there's any other way than me going to the cross, would you do it? But not my will, your will be done. It's with those passages we equate Jesus of being in anguish and, and in sorrow to the point where he's sweating blood. But then in the gospel account of John, John expands on the prayer that Jesus prays before he goes to the cross. And we get like a deeper look at some of the specific things that rose to the surface uh, in Jesus's heart and mind as he talked to his father before he went to his death. Before the passage that we're in, uh, Jesus prays for his father to glorify him, and then he prays for his immediate disciples. Then he prays for all believers, for anyone who would believe in the message that his disciples he know will take to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that in Acts in our time there. And one of the reoccurring themes in this prayer is that Jesus prays for believers to be one. Jesus prays for believers to be united. And it struck me recently that of all the things that Jesus could pray for as he's heading towards his death, as he makes his way to the cross, this is one of the things that rises to the surface of great importance to seek his Father on and to pray for you and to pray for me. He prays for unity. You think about when, when someone knows that they're going to die, their last words carries significant importance. And this is in the last several hours of Jesus's life, and this is what he chooses to pray for us. So with that, we should take note. With that, we should maybe raise our value and esteem unity at a higher place than maybe we currently do. Verse 20. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Would they, would they be one as we, you and I, Father, are one? What a statement, what a prayer to pray. And I, uh, I don't think we have the time. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the pedigree to fully unpack all the realities and all the impl implications of Jesus praying that, that we as the body of Christ would be one as he and the Father are one. But what I do want us to observe here is that Jesus knows the depths of true unity within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. He knows what unity is like. He has always experienced it. He knows the true benefits. He knows how good unity truly gets. And this is what he longs for us, that we might be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. But he prays, may they 
may we, may they be in us. That this unity that Jesus longs for for believers for all time, this can't happen on their own. This can't happen by simply being really good at liking each other. That there has to be connection to the Godhead. This unity has to be rooted and founded in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. May they be in us. This isn't going to be a man-made unity. This isn't going to be a man-ordained unity. This isn't going to be a man-planned unity or even a mansplained unity. And if you don't know what mansplaining is, ask my wife. I'm really good at it. Um, this is going to be something that is of God and that he asks us to join in him together, collectively, not just as individuals, to join in him, to make him our home, to make him our stay, to make him our dwelling. As Jesus is praying this, the word presence just strikes me, that this kind of unity is about presence, both us being present with one another, but then also, more importantly, being present with the Lord. As God himself is present, spirit, father, son, with each other, this is relational. He then says, be present with me, and I'll teach you how to be present together. I'll teach you how to be united. We're not going to be united just because of a good moral ethic. We're not going to be united just because of a lack of conflict. We're not going to be united just by thinking the right things together. But it's through true connection and abiding in the vine, as John 15 says. This is going to be what connects and unites believers from the time that Jesus dies through into eternity. And Jesus says, he doesn't get into all the reasons why this unity is so good, but we can imagine, we can use our imaginations why in thinking about the unity that he has in the Godhead. But he does say one thing that it produces, that we can see. He says, so that the world may believe, so that the world may know that the Father has sent me, that the Messiah has come. The unity of the church points to this. Our unity speaks of the ushering in of the new kingdom of Jesus. That there is an answer to sin. There is an answer for the brokenness in this world. That there is hope, and hope has come. And hope came and created those who had been isolated by sin into and joined them together into a new family, a new community, a new kingdom. Our unity speaks of this story. And it came through him laying down his life, taking on the sins of the world. Him who knew no sin becoming sin. And then him offering us his resurrection life so that we might live in it together. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus has made us capable of this kind of unity, this oneness that he experiences with the Father and Spirit because he's glorified us. What a weird thing, right? We, I feel that that should make us a little uncomfortable to some degree, right? Because when we talk about glorifying God, glorifying God is seeing God for who he truly is in all his beauty, his wonder, his might, his splendor, like recognizing the place that God and God alone should be in our lives, which is holy, set apart, 
awesome above all else, and we need his help to truly glorify him and see God rightly. But then throughout scripture, it talks about God glorifying his people too when we are in Christ. And so this is when God ushers in this beauty, this goodness, this awesomeness into our lives to forever shift and change our reality as well to change how we see each other, to change how we see the Lord, that Jesus has shared with us his glory, the glory that comes from the Father. None of it is our glory. It all is God cascading it down to us so that we might live in the ways that he has said are good and right and true. And it brings about this oneness to be one as we, as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I in them, you in me. That in this mixture of us being connected to one another and then connected to the Father, Jesus in turn says, and I will dwell, I will make my presence in them and among them by sending my spirit to be the indwelling spirit in my people. In the same way that the Father is with the Son, that Jesus can do nothing that the Father has not said for him to do. In the same way, his spirit will be in us as people, that he says, I will be in them So we've got this like the Father in the Son and us in the Father and us together and the Son in us. And as Jesus was praying this and I was reading it over and over again, I couldn't help but to think about science. Which if you know me, I never think about science. And if you really like science, I hope I don't butcher this. Um... But I hope my, also my sophomore chemistry teacher would be a little bit prouder of me today than he was when I was a sophomore. Because it made me think of mixtures and compounds. I hope I'm getting this right. Uh, I think we have a slide to help me, actually. Um, don't pay attention to all of it. There's no way I, I could even begin to explain it. Uh, we got mixture over there. We got compound over here. So what's a mixture? It's very simply said a bunch of different things brought together, right? A bunch of different things brought together. But a mixture can be separated again into those original things that were brought together, right, through physical means. They can be separated. They can be unjoined from one another. Where a compound, however, a pure substance, when these pure substances are brought together, they join together in a new way that make a new thing, and they can't be so simply separated again. It says by like chemical means, right? Chemical methods, it's this distilling, I don't know how they do it, but I'm guessing this distilling process to get things down to really tiny, tiny pieces and then somehow separate them, but it is not so easily separated. What does our unity in the church look more like? A mixture or a compound? Is it something that can be easily divided and separated by physical means again? 
I think sometimes like we view unity and it's like we come together on Sunday and God is here with us and, and we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but then we leave and go out of these doors and then it's that individualistic society and culture again of me and my faith, them and their faith, and then oh, we'll, we'll join back together up on Sunday again. It's not this picture of oneness, of being united and connected through the Godhead seeing each other radically differently because of what Jesus has done. That it shouldn't be so easy to divide. It shouldn't be so easy to separate. It shouldn't be so easy to put the categories back to where they used to be. That we are his body and he is the head. That is connected. It's not like a finger gets to run off and live its finger life, right? It is connected to the body. Is this how we view ourselves as the church? To be connected to the Father, connected to the Son and Spirit, and connected to one another in these ways. Hopefully I did the sciencing okay. Probably never again. I'll talk to Liam about it afterwards. He's good at science. Jesus says, The world will know you sent me and have loved me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Again, he says, the world will know that the Messiah has come into the world because of the unity of this church. And the world will know that you have loved them. You have loved the church. You have loved the world through the sending of your son and that you have loved them in the same way that you have loved the son. What a crazy thing that God has loved us with the same love that he loved his son, Jesus. I'm a father, and I have a son, and I only have one son at this point. His name's Bennett, and I probably talk about him a lot now. And I love my son. There's no other kid currently on this planet that I love as much as I love Bennett. And I cannot imagine having that same level of love for another as I do for Bennett. But Jesus is praying here, saying that the father, in the same way that he has loved his one and only son, he has loved the church. That's the love that we abide in. That's the love that we have received, and that's the love that the world needs to see. And how do they see it? Through our unity. So unity is probably sounding pretty good right about now for God's people. And it would be like, why on earth would we not want this? This is great. This is awesome. Yet why is it constantly a struggle? Why doesn't it come so easy to us? Why did we have to have a theme called disconnected for our youth group? Why, as I've talked to other youth pastors and other people on staff in churches, just in this area, have they all shared a similar story from the last two years that anywhere from a fourth to half of the people that used to attend their church on a regular basis are gone? Why was it so easy to divide? Why was it so easy to separate these things that are supposed to be so uniquely and, and intensely and divinely united? I do not have all the answers. I don't have many of the answers. All I can say is I know how I work. And I can share that with you because I often believe a lie. And the lie that I believe, I think that we have it on the screen as well. The lie I believe is this 
that unity should come naturally to believers. That's not the lie. That's actually true. Because of the gospel, it should come naturally to us. But when it doesn't, something's wrong with them. I think oftentimes as believers, we can say, I believe in Jesus, you believe in Jesus, we should just get along. And sometimes that happens, and really quickly. I find that at summer camps, working with other churches, it just does. But then as you keep doing life together, these things come up, and hardships happen, and brokenness and sin enter, and when it happens, when we felt united with another believer, and then it hurts, we look at them and go, oh, you screwed it up. Why'd you do that? We had unity. And you messed it up because you thought something different than me. You messed it up because you struggle with something I don't struggle with. You messed it up because you vote in ways that I don't vote. You messed it up because you don't have the same values that I have. When it comes down to it, we often want unity to be like this microwave, hot pocket unity. We want to get it out of the freezer. We want to slide it in its sleeve, toss it into the microwave for two minutes and 30 seconds. I haven't had one recently, but I think that's the right time. And then when we get it out, even if it's still a little cold, we're like, eh, it's just a hot pocket. Or if it's overdone, we just toss it out. We're like, well, that was gross. That's not a meal, though. And if you need to hear that this morning, there you go. A hot pocket is not a meal. A true meal takes time, preparation, intentionality, effort, mistakes to bring about something that truly is worth feasting on. We want unity sometimes to just be this poof. It just happens naturally because I love Jesus and you love Jesus. But when in our walk with Jesus does he ever just poof perfection into our lives? Isn't it through sanctification? Isn't it through, at times, work and hardship and ups and downs? Isn't it through struggle? Isn't it through being vulnerable? Isn't it through sacrifice? Isn't it through serving and being served as well? And isn't it through fighting at times? Wrestling? Our unity as believers will take surrender. Our unity as believers will take work. It will take us trusting in what God says is good, even when it doesn't poof like we want it to. And I think it will take some fighting, too. I was thinking about this. There's a lot of division right now that leads to fighting. What if instead, believers, we fought for unity? What if we took our efforts from fighting because we're divided and move them towards fighting for unity in the gospel? And not fighting like we're going to beat each other up till we can't anymore. Not like beating each other into submission that way for unity, but no, fighting by being humble. Fighting by actually considering others better than ourselves, as it says in Philippians 2. Fighting by laying down our life. Because that's what Jesus has done to cause unity to happen with us in the Lord. And if we simply think that they are the problem, 
which unfortunately I include that in there because I far too often do that. It is so easy to just point the finger and say, you messed this up and you hurt me. We need to remember Jesus' words to us on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, when he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Well, there's still a beam in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the beam out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Lord, save us from never thinking that we're not part of the problem, thinking that we didn't have some part to play. I have found that out in marriage over and over again. Usually I am the problem, at least a part. And we need that humility with one another if we are to display the unity and goodness of our God that a Savior has come, that his love abides in us to the world so others might believe. So what's Jesus' counteroffer? We've already heard it, but it's this. It's him in us as the Father is in him and we are in the Father. It's presence. It's making our home. It's making our stay. It's making our dwelling in the Lord together, not just as individuals, but collectively as the body of Christ. And that's what we got to see students do over and over again on our retreat. It wasn't always perfect. It didn't always go maybe the way that we planned or just be like, yeah, in the moment, that's it. But we saw our students strive for unity. They trusted the Lord that it was better to be vulnerable and to be transparent with their friends and with their leaders than to try to control their situation apart from God and community. They served each other. They considered each other's needs. And even at times, they apologized to one another when it was appropriate. They listened to one another, and they responded to each other in love. They encouraged each other and pointed, out, and pointed each other towards God. They celebrated each other's victories, and they were sad over each other's hurts. They sang out in one voice the goodness of God. And they wrestled through questions and brought them to God together. One of my favorite things from the retreat was how honest and how real our students' questions were over the course of that weekend. It truly was amazing. Questions I wish I knew to ask in middle school and high school. Jesus' prayer ends this way in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus concludes his prayer, praying and seeing ahead to where all this is going, to where unity of the church is going to take them, and it takes them into his perfected kingdom where they stand face to face with their Savior and say, you are awesome. You have done it. You are beautiful. You are marvelous. And you have kept us together. 
you have saved us, that we one day will be together glorifying our Savior for all eternity. And Jesus commits in the meantime to continually make the Father known to us and to make his love known to us by abiding in us and we in turn abiding in the Father. It's good news that Jesus is committed to bringing about this unity in his church. Would we long for, pray for, and usher in this kind of community, one as the Father and Son are one. Through our connectedness to one another and our connectedness to the, to the Godhead, to the Father, Son, and Spirit. And what I want us to do now is I want to give us something to practice. It's not going to be the solution to unity, uh, but it's a way to bring unity. This morning when you got here, there should have been like this little note on your chair and then a pen. And something that we do at our student retreats is we write notes of encouragement to one another throughout the weekend and pass them out at mealtimes. Um, sometimes these are, are notes saying why they're thankful for someone, uh, saying how that person has impacted them in their relationship with Jesus, um, encouraging that person in their own walk with Jesus, praying for that person or sharing scripture with that person. And what I want us to do this morning is to write a note of encouragement to someone that's in the room here today. And for some of you, this may be like, nice, this is my moment. I'm a, such a good letter writer. And for some of you, you're like, oh my gosh, what did he just ask me to do? But whether you're new, and this is your first Sunday, for one, welcome. We don't always do this, but we invite you to practice this with us too. Or whether you've been here for years and years and years, there'll be a little time of space where Renee plays um, the keys for a little bit. And I just want to invite you to pray and ask God, God, who could I encourage this morning? And maybe you don't know many people here, and you just need to write a note of encouragement to someone in the same row as you, and it could just be one of your favorite passages that you write down that you just want to share with them, or something that you want to pray for them, even praying for unity. And if you've been here for a long time, uh, don't just write to your best friend necessarily, but find someone else in the room. Um, pray and ask God, who, who could I share this encouragement with and see who comes to mind. And the goal isn't for each of us to get a, a note. That would be really awesome. But the goal is for us to encourage others. Uh, as it says on the front, encourage one another daily. Let me pray for us. Take some time with me now as we pray to seek the Lord in this. And then um, in this space that we have, write, write a note of encouragement um, to someone that's in this room and give it to them before they leave. Lord God, thank you for being a God who sustains us, a God who is with us, a God that truly knows what unity is. Jesus, thank you for praying this for us, that this is what you longed for us, that this is what you are bringing us into in your kingdom, perfect unity with the Father and with one another. We need your help, Lord, to be a church that looks like what you prayed, and not just a local church here, but a global church. Would you help us now, Lord, to just do a simple act of encouragement to one another, 
to bless someone else that's in this room and point them towards you. In your name, amen.